This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation. We will be commemorating International Women's Day throughout Fight Back today. First, with a look at some of the more prominent Canadian women politicians, many of whom are cabinet ministers to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And who better to offer their insights but our Tuesday strategy panelists, who will also provide their takes on how the Prime Minister is handling Canada's perspective while in Europe in solidarity with Ukraine against Vladimir Putin. Joining Fight Back as they do every Tuesday, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, conservative strategist John Capobianco, senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and former liberal Ontario finance minister Charles Souza. Welcome all. Karen, I'll ask you first, as a prominent woman in Toronto in recent decades, what does International Women's Day mean to you? I think it is, um, you know, it's a day I think that we don't pay enough attention to, certainly myself as a woman, because, you know, we've, there's been a lot of progress for sure with women in the workplace, there's still more to do, and, but I don't, I don't think that we actually, I certainly I don't, pause to celebrate um, the advances that have been made. And uh, also just be mindful about where we need to go and how, um, and also how women can support women in that effort. And I, I think that it's um, it's it's something that again I need to be more mindful of. And uh, even in my own workplace, I don't do enough to celebrate uh, the, the the leadership of the women who work there. So it's it's a, again it's a good pause. It's a good it's a it's a great opportunity for reflection. Well, and when you reflect back on your time as a professional woman, as a mother as well, um, a lot of people would look at you and say, you have it all, you've been able to do it all. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, where you are, where you've been, and where you're going? Well, it's, it's a funny idea to be able to do it all. I, I think that, you know, throughout our life, I think we're able to do it all, but at any one moment, you're always feeling as if you're making sacrifices. And, and I think that's just part of it. And um, again, something that too often I think women might feel guilty about, making sacrifices either from a family perspective or an, a, a career perspective. And I think we need to let that go a little mm-hmm. bit and, and look at the long game and say, you know, over the course of, you know, 20 years, I was able to achieve a number of things. But throughout that 20 years, there was trade-offs. And, and that's okay. And what about providing uh, that example for your daughter, say, or nieces, or, or other young people in your life as a woman? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an important lesson for my daughter and also for my son to recognize that there'll be there'll be points in his life that he might have to be called upon to make sacrifices for his family so that his partner is able to maybe pursue their choices. And so it's I think it's a conversation again that we have not just with with. The, the prominent women in our life, but also the men in our life, because it's something that they, I think, have a role to play as well in contributing to women being able to achieve their ambitions. Well, let's talk to the men in our conversation right now, John and Charles. You know, I I got a very nice email from my husband this morning telling me about the barriers that I've broken down in my career. I wasn't expecting it at all, uh, wishing me a a happy International Women's Day. Uh, To both of you, uh, John, um, prominent women in your life, uh, women who have leadership roles in your life that uh, you regard uh, not only as friends, but as uh, colleagues, valued people that you uh, considered to be uh, an important part of your life. Yeah, without a doubt, Jane. And, and you know, I echo everything that, that Karen says. And, and you know, and, and sort of, I've, I've watched um, uh, Karen's uh, successful career over many, many years, and yours as well. And, and you know, and it's great that this day is getting the attention that it deserves over the course of the last number of years. Obviously, it's been around for a long time, but it's certainly getting a lot more prominence. Um, and every year it gets more prominence, which I think is good. And it's, you know, it should be something that's celebrated every day, not just one day a year. But, um, I would just say that, that it, it's, it's an, an important aspect because I'm seeing it, you know, my, my firm's CEO is a female. Um, and, 
you know, uh, and and I'm on a number of boards where the where not only the CEO of the organization or the or the board chair are, are females. So I, I'm seeing a lot of that, which is which is tremendous. And and I and also just being on boards where. Um, and even in the company, when we decide to do hiring, you know, there's there's always now um, a, a situation where they're, they're looking at gender parity or, or neutrality and, and making sure that there are enough women uh, on the various boards or in staff. And, and that's something that, you know, having been in this career for some 20 years in, in the government relations lobbying career, wasn't the case. And, and I'm seeing that. And if I can be more specific to my trade in, in government relations, where at the very beginning it was much more male dominated and now it's flipped. You know, the president of the of the organization that represents lobbyists, the Public Affairs Association of Canada, is now led by by a female. So it's great to see that, and and I can see that you know specifically in my industry, but just in general, Jane, it's it's great that that boards and organizations are now looking at not only diversity and equity and inclusion, um, but making sure that that also gender uh, is uh, is something that that is looked at in, in a way that that seems much more fairer. Uh, and much more representative, quite frankly, of the world, which which is dominated by women. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, that is interesting information. Charles, what about you, your reflections on International Women's Day? You know, I, I grew up in a family. Uh, we, were, we were a matriarch. My grandmother, born in the 1800s, uh, ruled uh, the home, but more importantly, she ruled the businesses. She ruled uh, the, ec- the economy and much of what uh, our family has done. And I always measure, and she taught us this, to measure the leader, especially a woman leader, by their positive influence on both girls and boys, on both men and women. And her thinking and her way of being was, and I see this, being someone who grew up in Mississauga, I mean, Hazel McCallan's the only mayor I've had, right? She's stern but fair. She doesn't overcompensate, but she gets it done. And she does homework. Like she deliberates over the work that's necessary. And that positive influence, to me, is what is the measure uh, of a true leader. And women who I've had in my life have been a positive influence on me. And I've surrounded myself with, and I've worked with many women, both in the bank and in government. And people in my staff, people that I've worked with me, are so, they're much more meticulous. So Kathleen Wynn appointed me as co-chair to Women on Board. So I was there for seven years trying to promote more women to to those C-level suites and to the boards. And we know that when they're there, the, the, the thinking, you know, that, 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 that notion of uh, one way of thinking is, is diminished and there's more success on those boards. So I look at strong women who are both stern but also fair and enable others to succeed and promote that and also teach men and boys to be respectful in those respect, in, in that regard. And that's what, I grew up being, and my father, for example, a quick story. He was one of the first immigrants to Canada from the Portuguese uh, community back in the early 50s. The president of Portugal comes to Canada. They're all being celebrated. And my father, when he got to the podium, purposely said to the entire congregation, the people that were there, I am focusing, I'm speaking to the first lady. An accomplished woman went to Cambridge, did tremendous work, but she was in the shadows. And he spoke directly to her recognizing the sacrifices that men made here were equally shared by the sacrifices the women made. And they were here to enable their children, their generation, the new generation, to stay in school, to succeed. And they were speaking a lot to the girls in our community to do better. Great story. Uh, and you mentioned um, Mayor Hazel McCallion, uh, Mayor Bonnie Crombie, creating a legacy of her own in Mississauga, and she will be mm-hmm. joining us in the second half of Fight Back today. Let's talk about the prominent Trudeau cabinet ministers, many of whom are women. Karen, uh, the, how have Anita Anand, Melanie Jolie, Christian Freeland been doing, especially since Vladimir Putin waged war on Ukraine? Oh, I think um, uh, particularly uh, the the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Christia Friedland, she's been very vocal. Um, this is her file. This is, this is, she's studied in the Ukraine. She understands the history. She understands the geopolitics of it. And so I think she's actually taking a leadership role, not just in cabinet, but even on the world stage around um, understanding the end game for Putin and why they they, the world has to coalesce around tough sanctions and harsh measures and be very uh, dedicated to um, making sure that he, he's not successful in this endeavor. 
And so I think from that perspective, it's been really quite remarkable to see that level of leadership, um, particularly on the global stage, because I think it's not where Canada has always been in the last few years. And I think now we're really starting to shine. And, and I think a lot of that is owed to her. John, what do you think about that? These women uh, who are surrounding and are effectively second in command to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, not one of them, but multiple. Well, and and I'll I'll give the Prime Minister credit. Um, I don't often, uh, but I do give him credit where it's when it's when it's due and and where it's due. And and I think he's always been uh, he's always been keen to ensure that that his cabinet had had gender um, uh, parity and, and in many cases, gender balance. And, and he's always had uh, strong women in, in very powerful positions. It's one thing to have you know, women in, in cabinet, but but it doesn't make sense if, if they're not able to have the, the, the portfolios which gives them the, the power. And, and, you know, Chrystia Freeland and Anita Non have been two that have been outstanding since the time they've been, um, you know, I don't agree with them all the time with respect to how they handle things, but, but just from the perspective of what they've been able to accomplish and, and certainly their stature, Within the government of Canada and internationally, especially now that Anita Nan is, is Minister of Defense, have been tremendous. But I do want to focus on Melanie Jolie for a second because, uh, of all the three, I would expect Christopher Freeland and, and Anita Nan ministers to, to, to do well because they've, they've just been they've been doing well. But, but Melanie Jolie's had a bit more of a of a storied sort of path to her ministry to her success in government. She's had a couple of, you know, not so successful. Tenures in, in various ministries early on, but but the prime minister gave her the confidence to take on the role of foreign affairs, and and of course that was before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, and she has been I got to give her credit she's been tremendous she's been there uh, her her press conferences Jane have been solid she's been there with the people of Ukraine so you know I give I, I compliment all three of them but I, I just a special shout out to Melanie Jolie who I think has done a, a fairly decent job as, as, as foreign affairs minister in a very trying time. And Charles, your thoughts of the women who are surrounding Justin Trudeau on the federal stage? You know, it's important that these women, these ministers, are serve, they serve as an example because of their accomplishments, their ability, and their meticulous nature. I, I know Anita Nanan, I appointed her to a number of boards when I was then the minister. Um, she's an advocate for community uh, uh, and, and in the Ontario Securities Commission trying to support uh, the consumers and, and, and to safeguard people's positions. And you see that in her, her, in her deliberate way, uh, when she was the Minister of Procurement and now in the Ministry of Defense. Um, and I admire her, her humility as much as I admire her ability to stand firm on the issues that matter. And she's deliberate. Krista Freeland, of course, is well celebrated as a leader in our, in, in Canada and in, in the world for that matter. And even before she became uh, an elected member, she was quite uh, strong and prominent. And um, I, even Melanie Jolie, she's proving herself to be worthy because of her abilities to to uh, move forward on, on matters uh, that are very crucial and very critical. Uh, so I admire them by their example, just like I admire man and their ability to lead by example. And they've done that in a great way. 416-360-0740. If you would like to get in on the conversation here with our strategy panelists, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz, Jane for Libby. And we're talking about prominent uh, cabinet ministers federally, but I also want to discuss uh, women on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, including Christine Elliott on the provincial stage, who has decided not to run for re-election. Uh, in June in the provincial election. Also, Candace Bergen. Uh, let's go around the table. Our thoughts about how Candace Bergen is holding the position of federal conservative leader until uh, the next leader is named. Karen. Well, she's in a tough position because uh, she, she does, she has to hold the fort and she has to keep the conservatives united um, so that she can hold the government to account because the conservatives are the official opposition and yet there's this jockeying within the party at a time of the leadership race. And so I, I don't envy her, her role. And, um, you know, I, I think that there was time, to, you know, I didn't entirely agree with the tone she took on the, on, on the trucking situation. But, but by and large, I think she's trying to be that, um, she's trying to be the placeholder and not assert, um, you know, and, and try to keep the coalition together, recognizing that she really is in a temporary position. And that the best she can do is herd the cast right now. Mm. Uh, is that a, that's a good description, John, uh, that she is the placeholder. Is she rising to that occasion? 
Yeah, no, Karen's spot on, Jane, with respect to that the tough position being an interim leader because you do, especially uh, at a time when you know when Errol too was unceremoniously dumped by his own caucus in a in a very public and and and, and significant way, um, which which really spoke to the division and the rift within the party. So sort of coming in and and being that interim leader, your job one is to unite the caucus and, and kind of have one voice. Um, and then also to set the party and the caucus up for the new leader, whoever he or she may be. So that position is tough because you want to be able to exude that level of, of leadership and, and, you know, forward thinking and being able to do that whilst not overshadowing the potential leadership candidates that are, that are now running for, for the job. So I think she's done a phenomenal job. I think she's doing well. I've known, I've known Candace for some time now and really impressed with, with her. And, and I think she's going to do a great job handing it off to the, to the next leader of the party. And then you also mentioned Christine Elliott and, and I, you know, no, no surprise. I'm a big fan of Christine Elliott. I, I ran one of her leadership campaigns, the one where she lost to, uh, to Patrick Brown, um, and somebody who has been in the public service for some 13 plus years, um, you know, ran for leadership three times, you know, really, and also had a very outspoken and high profile husband in Jim Flaherty, uh, and, uh, and also was in her own right, um, particularly uh, high profile and, and was able to manage that with, with three kids. Um, so a lot of lot of props to, to Christine Elliott. I think she's done phenomenal in the public service, and I hope her well in, in the next uh, phase of her career when she uh, leaves after the election. Well, since you've gone down that path, uh, Charles, certainly I want to get your thoughts on Candace Bergen. You know, and I was thinking about Ronna Ambrose as well. What an excellent interim conservative leader she was. Um, it's interesting that these conservative women have held interim roles as opposed to the actual leadership. Uh, but your thoughts, Candace Bergen, Christine. Elliot uh, deciding to leave. I, I, I don't know if anybody knows the inside story on that, Charles. <laughs> well, I was going to mention Rona Ambrose as well. Um, you know, these are accomplished women, and they I shine when they're put in these roles. I kind of wonder, why aren't they running permanently? Why should they not be uh, the next leader themselves? And, you know, Candace Bergman is holding her own. Uh, she's in a predicament, and she's trying to, you know, keep the party united and strong. And be a strong opposition uh, to the governing party. But people like her and Rana Ambrose um, have proven that they, on their own right, can stand and do the job. Christine Elliott has proven that many times. I mean, I, I, I was on the opposite side. We appointed Christine Elliott uh, to an ombudsman when we were in power because we recognized her credentials, her accomplishments, her ability. And I think part of the reason she's leaving is she's accomplished. There's not much more she can do under the thumb, let's say, of of the current premier. I mean, what is she going to do? And and I find her to be more methodic, more meticulous. She um, does, as Hazel would say, she does her homework. And she deliberates over the issue and when she presents them. At times, I don't always see that. And so I admire her. I wish her well. It'll be a loss for the government. I guess it's her private business, whatever the reason is that she's left, Karen. But it, it seems like any time um, a prominent person plays the family card, I made the decision with family to move on. It, it just feels like there's another story. I, I wonder if we'll find out anything else uh, about what led to her decision. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, Jane. Like, the reason I left politics, I said it was my family. It was, it was because I wasn't going to be mayor. So it was time for me to go. Um, <laughs> I love your honesty. <laughs> I love your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I don't doubt that it's been an extremely difficult four years for her. And I, I don't doubt her when she says she's tired. And that it's been, it's been a long haul. And when she looks out at the next four years and thinking about um, the task ahead, she just might be doing some reflection, saying, I don't know that I have it in me to do what needs to get done, and I need to hand it over to someone who can't. And I I think there's nothing wrong with that. John, final thoughts on Christine Elliott before we move on to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Yeah, I can I can almost tell you with 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 100 percent surety that that, you know, it, it was just time. For, for Christine, she's got triplet boys, and, and who all of whom are, are successful in their respective careers, and um, you know, so you want to spend some time with them. But also, you know, given the length of time she's been in the public service and under the public eye, you know, the scrutiny of, of, of public office, not only when when Jim was alive and 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 also a high profile minister, but also in her own right uh, in government, and and also uh, as Karen alluded to, like the, the last two years, uh, nobody got nobody when they ran in the last provincial or quite frankly federal election ever. 
suspected that two years of their of their career was going to be consumed by a global pandemic of unprecedented nature. Uh, and and as Minister of Health, the the level of pressure and and just you know, focus. There are sleepless nights that she had, just you know, virtually waiting to, to wake up in the morning to see, you know, how many deaths or what what, what the positivity rates were. That wears on anyone. Uh, and the fact that that Christine's been at it for such a long time, I think she just needed to break. And quite frankly, I was quite happy that she didn't just resign on spot. But she said, "Look, I'm going to just let you know that I'm not running in the next election, but I'm going to stay on as Minister of Health and Deputy Premier until the end of the term." And that was a class act, and I thought that really helped the Premier, and it also allowed. For people to kind of think, okay, well, now I really get why she's 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 stepping down. So I think it, it became a story more about her accomplishments and less about why she left the the government. You know, from from that perspective. John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, Charles Souza, Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, our Tuesday strategy panel. The war in Ukraine waged against Vladimir Putin is now seven days older than when you joined us uh, last Tuesday. Um, as we go around the table, uh, your thoughts on on what has developed during that time, uh, the West's reaction, you know, specific to Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, uh, just your general thoughts here as we wrap up this week's conversation, Karen. Yeah, I think we um, I, I think that it should be called Putin's war. Um, and it's not a Russian invasion. It's really Vladimir Putin is invading the Ukraine. Right. Um, and and I and I and I think that the more that he gets isolated in that discussion, that the more the Russians could potentially feel emboldened to stand up to what's happening. Because I, I think right now there's 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 no path out of this mm. chaos that he has created. And you know I I know that the decision to ban Russian oil will cause gas prices to increase, but. You know, certainly the conversations I've been having with friends and family, and again, back to the dog park example, like we're willing to bear that because he can't be successful. And if it takes paying a little bit more at the pump, if it takes a little bit of hardship on our end, which is so minor compared to what's happening in the Ukraine, then we need to be able to do it because he cannot be successful in this invasion. It, it cannot happen. And um, I'm, I'm glad that our global leaders are recognizing that there are some constraints to their ability to, to be proactive and um, waging a war against Russia because it's not Russia. It is one man. It is one man, mm-hmm. and he needs to be held to account, and he needs to not be in the position that he can be victorious in this. Charles, endeavor. how is the world doing against Vladimir Putin? Uh, we're uh, late tonight. It will be two weeks since he started the war. Well, I am. I'm proud of Canada stepping up, bringing more troops to Latvia, and to show some strength. Um, you can't underestimate Putin. Certainly, I mean, he wants to make the West and NATO look weak. Um, he knows that, uh, you know, the no-fly zone and, and, and the, the, the moment we uh, start to engage in Poland and, and in the airspace of, of the Ukraine, is a, it's, it's very dangerous stuff. And he's a very calculated individual. I can't underestimate Putin. Some may say he's suicidal. I don't think he is, and I think someone wrote about that. I, I'm hoping that the Russian people will, up, will be an uprise, that there will be a revolt from within. Um, you know, if Zelensky is killed, that'll make it even more of a delicate situation for the West, because then we're in a position of responsibility as well. Um, so we need to stand united. And I think Putin underestimated the West and NATO's ability to, to be more united than before. Will they act? And everyone's afraid to do so because the consequences are dire. Right. Um, so uh, it's a just I don't I'm I'm not a meta, you know I'm not a strategist when it comes to to defense and the military but I'm proud to see what we're doing. John, Ukraine cannot fall because as soon as Ukraine falls then we have Putin marching into NATO countries and that could be devastating for the world. So the balancing act as I see it is the NATO leaders need to fuel Ukraine without officially crossing that line and uh, allowing Ukraine to be part of NATO. Well, and I, you know, so the one thing that that sticks to me in this last couple of weeks with this is the resilience of the Ukrainian people and, and sort of the, the fact that they've been able to stop um, the Russian army or at least slow them down. I think that is the story. And, and it's and it's right, right from the President Zelensky all the way down to, to every man and woman who's, who's working that war. So that's a huge story. And I do agree, though, Jane, with respect to NATO. And, and you know, there's some, some early criticisms of NATO not really being able to you know, sort of lean in on this in a way that, that everybody's expecting to. But, but Canada, UK, 
um, and other countries, other G7 countries and other countries in NATO are stepping up and are putting up the resistance and are trying to push back on this. I think the biggest issue the U.S. has in not sending in troops is they don't want to make it a U.S.-Russia war, mm-hmm. uh, which can turn into a World War III, but they are trying to do everything they can by making it tough for, for Putin specifically to continue on with the war. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a decent positive sign moving forward. We will leave it there for this week. Thank you all for your time once again. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, John Capobianco, conservative strategist, senior vice president, senior partner at Flashman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister, Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel. Still to come, we continue our conversation on International Women's Day with one of Canada's most prominent municipal politicians. Next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is away this week. Uh, The people of Mississauga continue to be represented by a strong woman, as they have for decades. Bonnie Crombie has been mayor of Mississauga since 2014. Mayor Crombie took over from the legendary Hazel McCallion, who had been mayor since 1978. Mayor Bonnie Crombie joins us now to offer her reflections on this International Women's Day. Mayor, thanks for being with us. Jane, thanks very much for having me. It is a great day. It's a great day to celebrate the achievements of women whether they're social, economic, cultural, or political achievements. And you mentioned off the top the name of my most inspiring mentor and friend, Hazel McCallion. She's pretty incredible, and I think she did great things. We're gonna, I want to talk to you about two things when I, as I have your attention. First is the meritocracy in Mississauga, and secondly, the She Session. So Hazel created opportunities for women in, by uh, the, by being prepared. Those women who deserved it succeeded. And you will see today that 58% of my council, uh, six out of 11 of us, include, include me, that's, <laughs> we're overrepresented with women, not over, but it's equal, uh, six out of 12, 50%. Two of my four commissioners are women. My former city manager was a woman. The chief of my fire department is a woman. The person who runs our hospitals is a woman. And 47% of my managers um, are women. So we're doing pretty well in Mississauga, led, of course, by the groundbreaking, trailblazing Hazel McCallion. But today we're seeing, you know, with the effects of COVID and the disparities that COVID has caused um, in the economic recovery. So first in the economy and now in the recovery. And, you know, that's something worth talking about and worth thinking about. We heard about this she session, of course, and the impact that it had on women because uh, in businesses where women are largely employed, suffered the greatest lockdowns. Uh, and it really impacted the hospitality industry, food services, and personal care providers. Uh, and so largely these sectors uh, employ a lot of women and these women were forced to find jobs in, in other, in other sectors or, you know, stay home and collect the financial benefit of the CERB or scale back. Um, and when you think about it, uh, women have always had predominant, uh, share of responsibility at home, whether it came to household responsibilities, children caring for elderly parents, but during COVID, even more so, not that the dads didn't, but when you think about who stepped in to ensure that the kids were doing their online classes and being taken care of, all while still maintaining their own responsibilities and managing their careers, it was women. So we see a lot of women. Yeah, a lot of women are leaving their professions, leaving their jobs, and choosing greater flexibility. We've seen women opting out of the corporate world previously for flexibility, and now we're seeing it in many, many more sectors. In fact, I'll just give you one more stat, and then we can talk a little more about this, but 25% of all women were thinking of leaving the workforce because of the pandemic, but more so acute for South Asian women. Almost half, 47% of South Asian women are looking at leaving the workforce altogether because of the pandemic. 
You know, you bring up um, a perspective that in a lot of ways, and no offense uh, to, to men, but you're bringing them up from a personal experience as a woman, understanding the pull that women have at home with children and with a career. And in the case of the pandemic, uh, we're faced with, with losing their jobs, at least temporarily. I, I just want to backtrack a bit to Hazel McCallion. I've, oh, no. I've always admired how you and, and it is very authentic the way you embrace her legacy, the way you embrace her as a mentor. Um, at, what have you learned from Hazel that you can tell us in just a couple of minutes? <laughs> yeah, no problem. So as you know, I adore her. We all do. She's lovable and she's iconic and she does it naturally. And she succeeded in an era where women just weren't in senior management positions. There weren't women in C-suites. And she was a woman who was, you know, really trailblazed her own path. She skated. She played hockey. She took a secretarial course and went on to, I think it was uh, Dominion Engineering, and got a a job in a high-powered engineering uh, company that later built the very power plant that she took down (laughs) so that we could build the Lakeview community. Uh, and, you know, she tells us to just be prepared. Women have to work twice as hard to be half as effective. So women in particular, do your homework, she always taught us. You be the best prepared person in the room. And then, of course, have your voice heard because, we, as you and I both often know, that women tend to get spoken over at the boardroom table and somebody else takes credit for our, our ideas. And Hazel would be the first one to say to be assertive have your voice heard, but be prepared, do your homework. All of us here cite those uh, uh, those words of wisdom that Hazel McCallion always said, do your homework and be prepared. Of course, she is legendary for so many reasons, but uh, certainly because of the amount of time she spent as Mississauga mayor. Now, you are uh, reflecting back on your time coming up on eight years, which is hard to believe. So you're creating a bit yeah. of a legacy for yourself, Mayor Crombie. Um, what uh, what are your plans in terms of running for a third term? I'm sure that is what's in the offing for you. Oh, Jane, thanks so much. So Hazel was mayor 36 years. I have no plans to stay 36 years. I'll <laughs> leave that legacy to Hazel. Uh, you know, I do plan to run on the third term, of course. That, that'll be this October. There are just so many amazing projects here to complete in Mississauga. We're in an incredible growth phase. We are a city where people look to live, to work, to move to, to raise their children and to invest in. And we're seeing some transformational projects here in our city, whether it's the here Ontario light rail transit. And we're still lobbying for that loop around the downtown. I know that Premier Florida, he mentioned it uh, in the announcement. He's named the LRT for Hazel. And he said, yes, we'll be back to you with funding for that loop, Mayor Crombie. So I said, yes, thank you, Premier. And of course, a hospital transformation. Uh, ours, our hospital is seven times as busy as the average hospital in Ontario. And of course, it was built in the 1950s. You can't even plug in some of the newer technology uh, that we need. So we're having a complete rebuild, 22 stories over a million square feet. Um, and so a hospital rebuild, the beautiful new communities on the waterfront, Lakeview, Brightwater. Oh, my gosh. We're looking at redeveloping uh, our marina as well. When you look at the downtown, I have 55 towers coming in in the next 30 years, 25 of them in the next five years. And then Oxford Omers, who built Square One, have plans north of the mall, another tower per year. Uh, then we're building Uptown. We're creating a new Uptown location. We're building on the Ninth Lie land. And by the way, all our communities are visioned by the communities. We work with the communities, so we're ensuring that we're building what they want in their neighborhoods. Mayor so- Crombie, we have we have one of your <laughs> constituents on the line here. She's a regular caller, Sita from Mississauga. And I know, Sita, you want to talk about International Women's Day, and I thought maybe you'd like to say hi to your mayor as well. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Jane. Um, first of all, I want to say we are sorry and very sad for what is happening in your own your own country, and we're all standing with you. And you, happy you. Women's Day. Bonnie, thank you're doing you. a great job. And you, Hazel, oh my God, she's amazing. Yeah. So, 
We are Thank very proud. Of we all love Hazel, but you know it's very hard to walk in her footsteps. So you carve yes. your own path. But uh, she always guides me. If I have any doubt, you know, during the pandemic, I called her regularly. I'll tell you, I called just to check up on her, make sure she was well, but also, you know, she, just to get her encouragement that we were on the right path. And I, I just like to hear her voice. I'd like to hear her say so. <laughs> and you're doing a great job. Thank you, Sita. Thanks Thank for calling. My in. husband. Yes. Every day is Women's Day. Too bad there oh. aren't more women leaders since we can run a house on a tight budget and can handle a lot of stress and sacrifice. Being a successful man is a good woman. Oh, very nice. Well Thank put. Thank you so much, Sita. Thanks care. for calling no. in. Thanks. Mayor Crombie, as you reflect back on uh, on your life professionally and personally, um, where what is your what do you still want to accomplish? Just just on a personal level. I mean, and that can include your plans for Mississauga. But what do you see for yourself? You still um, you obviously have a huge amount of energy and vitality. <laughs> so so what's oh. next or what what's in the future? Oh, you know what? That's a that's a whew, very charged question. You know, I'm I'm very happy today to be in the position that I'm in. It's uh, it's a real privilege to lead the city and these incredible people here in Mississauga. We are at a huge growth phase, and I'd like to be able to. I'd like to have the opportunity to continue to shepherd it through. It's been such an honor to serve. So, Seven and a half years as mayor, three years as a councillor. I had the uh, the privilege of serving as a member of parliament for a term as well. I'm blessed because I'm the mother of three incredible kids that are, you know, they're very accomplished in their own right. They're all professionals. They have great partners. They stand on their own two feet. And I'm very proud of each of them. Uh, and then I'm proud of the city we're building. So I'd like to continue in public service. I always saw myself giving back, you know, and in public services been a great opportunity for me to do so first as a member of parliament, then as a councillor, um, and then as mayor. So, you know, I have uh, relished this opportunity. And let me tell you that it is truly a privilege to serve. And so it's something I, I don't take lightly. I take it to heart. And each and every day, I think about the people of Mississauga, and how can I ensure that they have the best quality of life with the best services and programs that they deserve for their tax dollars. Mayor, do you ever think about uh, becoming Premier or Prime Minister one day. Are, are those co- positions in the cards for you? I mean, Mississauga is a monstrous city, so it is a huge yeah. job into it unto itself. It's a huge challenge, and I love this city, and I love the people. And as you know, I, I had a term in, in Ottawa, and it was very tough because my kids were much younger then, and it was saying goodbye to them and flying to Ottawa three weeks out of four, and that was very, very difficult. I, I don't see myself going back to, to Ottawa. No, I love this city. But if I can continue in public service in some way, even after I left uh, as mayor, I have no plans to leave, by the way, certainly running for a third term. Um, you know, I, I just feel very committed to the people and I can whatever I can offer to serve them I'm willing to do so so uh, you know I love this city um, I'm here we're going to build and continue to build an a, a even better city we have so many plans whether it's for the waterfront uh, improved transit uh, affordable housing I should mention because that's it's so difficult for young families, all families, middle class families, to purchase housing. You know, even Mississauga that used to once was very affordable is priced out of the market now. And it's the job of myself and all the mayors to come together to ensure that we're building, we're creating a supply of housing. So I know the premier is very concerned about supply, but I'm concerned about affordability. And so are all the mayors. It's not enough to say we're not getting supply to the market. It's supply of affordable housing that our workforces can afford places so we can be continue to be a city where people choose to work, but also to live and raise their families. So to build that affordable housing and continue to build transit and world-class infrastructure and beautiful communities by the lake, you know, there's so much to do here. I love this city and want to continue to give back. I just want to ask you one more question before we say goodbye, and it's related to the pandemic. And I know you were on the front lines of the pandemic in Peel Region, Mississauga, for the last two years. Based on the information you're getting from Dr. Lawrence Lowe and others, do you think that we're coming out of it finally? I'll say that I'm very confident and I'm very optimistic. Uh, Dr. Lowe feels that with Omicron, this is the pandemic has largely become endemic now. 
Uh, he tells me that there are no very little traces of Delta or Beta or Alpha, the other variants, the original variants. It's all Omicron now, which, as we know, if you've been vaccinated and boosted, you may get uh, the, ver- the, vi- the virus, mm-hmm. but your symptoms will not be severe. It's not likely you'll, you'll need hospitalization and even less so likely that you'll be in the ICU. I believe Trillium Health Partners has only about 30 cases in the hospital and only six in the ICU. So I'm starting to see life as normal on the very short horizon. Oh, I, ho- I hope you're right. I think you're right. Based on all the information that we're getting, that's certainly what it would seem to be, that it's becoming an endemic rather than a pandemic. Mayor Crombie, it's been a pleasure, as it always is, to speak Thank with you. you on this International Thank Women's you. Day. Enjoy your day as International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to everyone. Thank you. Mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie. Jane for Libby here on Fight Back. And coming up in the final segment, we're joined by a former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine to talk about how Canada's response to both the people of Ukraine and Russian dictator Vladimir Putin is going. That's coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby's on vacation. We are at almost the two-week mark since Vladimir Putin began his war against Ukraine. Joining me now to talk about Canada's response to date is former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Roman Waszak, on the line from Krakow, Poland. Roman, thank you for being with us. Uh, glad to be with you. How are you doing through all of this, personally? I'm doing okay. I uh, managed to be uh, <clears throat> one of the people who got out before things got really bad. Um, <clears throat> now that I'm out in, in Krakow, you walk the streets and basically half the people you hear speaking are uh, sound like they're Ukrainians. So there's a, a huge wave of uh, probably two million people overall, of whom over a million are in Poland alone. Yes. And uh, so you left, you were in Ukraine when the war began two weeks ago. That's right. Yes. And uh, I think on the second, second slash third day, we uh, crossed the border to Poland. And in the meantime, I, over the weekend, I helped uh, one of our former uh, Canadian embassy employees, a retired employee and her daughter and granddaughter uh, to, uh, come into Poland from the border. So uh, uh, Polish families have been finding apartments for them to stay at. So it's been really a remarkable effort on the part of especially uh, the Polish people who've been extremely helpful, extremely hospitable. You were the ambassador, the Canadian ambassador to Ukraine between 2014 and 2019. Uh, Since then, what has your involvement been? Well, since then, uh, I was retired for a while in Toronto, uh, listening to your stations. And uh, then in January, I took up a new job as business ombudsman in Ukraine, which is uh, basically an internationally supported uh, operation that uh, helps protect the interests of Ukrainian businesses if the authorities uh, engage in any sort of pressure or malpractice on 32 staff. Uh, not including me, all the all the rest are Ukrainians, and we have about a third who are in still in uh, in Kyiv, our headquarters. Four of them joined the army, so they're three lawyers and one IT guy are out there on the front lines. Wow! And uh, about ten are in other parts of Ukraine, mostly the west, and then ten are abroad. Now, you were ambassador in 2014 when Vladimir Putin illegally annexed Crimea. Uh, is, is this situation, I mean, obviously on a much larger scale, somewhat reminiscent of that era as, as a precursor to all of this? Well, precursor, yes, but, but nothing in, in comparison to this. Now, I thought I was a pretty hard-bitten analyst, and so I was warning staff in late January of this year, early February, based on my 2014 experience, things could get bad. But I think uh, I did not imagine that uh, Putin would do a, a rerun of, uh, of Aleppo uh, in 
cities that he claims are inhabited by members of uh, his one huge Russian people. He always says Ukrainians and Russians are the same people, but he's bombing the living daylights out of them and killing thousands. Let's talk about Canada's response uh, to Putin's war in Ukraine so far. Uh, What have you seen that you think has been good in terms of our position and, and our ability to offer some assistance? And what more needs to be done? Right. Well, uh, I think over the uh, six, seven years preceding this round of fighting, uh, the military training and police training we provided to the Ukrainians has definitely turned out to have been effective. I think uh, people, most people are quite surprised at how well the Ukrainian forces are defending against, uh, uh, you know, a, a much more numerous and better armed uh, foe. But those of us who saw the uh, training activities realized that the transformation was happening. Uh, the, we were late to the game in Canada in supplying lethal weaponry, but we've stepped things up considerably uh, since then. So I think we're doing better. And uh, we unfortunately aren't as well stocked ourselves to be able to provide as much as some other countries in terms of what Ukraine needs now. Um, there are, I, as far as I know, I just saw a tweet today, uh, nearly 500 Canadians who have signed up for the International Legion that Ukraine is forming. So that is a kind of a civil society volunteer form, obviously not Government of Canada. Uh, Government of Canada is trying to help coordinate uh, both humanitarian and uh, non-lethal uh, civil society supplies into Ukraine. So I think that's a, that's a positive contribution. I think Canada could be more forward-leaning on protecting at least a part of Ukraine's sky. I know it's a very controversial subject. Uh, but looking at, uh, let's say, that part of western Ukraine where airports have not yet been destroyed right. around the city of Lviv, I think that uh, being among the more forward-leaning at NATO on, you know, d- declaring uh, declaring that area to be what uh, what Turkey has done in Idlib province in Syria and prevented a lot of bombing happening there, that's something that could be done without going for the full Uh, no-fly zone option right off the bat. Okay, um, and I'm speaking with Canadian, former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Roman Washek. What would that look like, uh, Canada protecting the airspace over Western Ukraine? How would that... uh, Go ahead. Uh, Well, uh, this could involve uh, airplanes, and that, of course, would be... uh, be, considered problematic by the Russians. On the other hand, you can stay over Polish airspace and simply try and take down missiles that are mm. that might be rained down on that area without actually being over Ukraine itself. Right. Uh, you can you can have uh, anti-aircraft defense batteries on. Now, of course, that, that also uh, creates some risk for Poland. And Poland right now is looking at uh, giving some of its old Soviet-made MiG-29 fighters to Ukraine, mm-hmm. but it's asking for backup from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, with with their own airplanes or other airplanes uh, to replace them. Uh, so there are different ways to sort of skin that cat. Uh, I just think that there needs to be more attention devoted to solving this problem instead of creatively explaining why things can't be done. What about the economic sanctions? How effective uh, are those currently that have been placed uh, by both Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland? Well, I think uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland's idea that she really sold to other G7 uh, countries about freezing Russia's central bank holdings has been particularly effective in undermining confidence in ruble. It's down to, I think... uh, close to 150, 160 to the dollar, uh, over 200 to the euro and the pound. Um, so that, that hurts everybody in the pocketbook in Russia. But then, frankly, we haven't seen a whole lot of opposition to the war in Russia. Russia has gone very totalitarian in information terms. So, uh, so the economic uh, lever is about the only one we've got there. Um, I think the, uh, the decision not to buy Russian oil is obviously an important one, more important for other countries in Canada us being a major oil producer, the U.S. deciding not to buy Russian oil is probably, in fact, a market opportunity for Canadian oil producers to, re- to help replace that gap in U.S. Uh, supply. 
So I think these are all uh, measures that will cost us some money, but they cost far less than a successful campaign by Putin, which would then allow him to keep rolling in the direction of NATO. Right. Uh, In terms of military spending, Canada's military spending on this current trip that Justin Trudeau is on uh, today, in fact, I think he said in Latvia, he made no firm commitment about increasing spending uh, to be more aligned uh, proportionally with other NATO countries. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, I think what is very positive is that the Prime Minister extended the uh, Canadian mission in Latvia indefinitely, Mm -hmm. and that's going to cost money, too. Um, I think that we need to get serious. Uh, Canada has been, in certain respects, a bit of a free rider on security, and we've discovered both through COVID and through this crisis that some of our systems are underfunded and aren't as robust as they need to be to respond to crises that are maybe low probability, but very high impact. So, uh, you know, we, we, li- we like to speak uh, in Canada about an abundance of caution. Well, an abundance of caution in these circumstances means actually spending an abundance of money to, mm-hmm. to ensure that we don't get caught out. I'm speaking with former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Roman Washak. Everybody wants to know how this is going to turn out, what's going to happen. Based on your experience, your knowledge of Ukraine, your knowledge of Vladimir Putin, where are we going from here? What do you see happening in the days, weeks to come? Well, Putin is obsessed with uh, de-Ukrainianizing Ukraine. Basically, he's he's going quasi-genocidal on that. Uh, So it'll take a lot of pressure to dissuade him. Um, I think uh, I, I read today the uh, the phrase "peace of attrition." Uh, in other words, where things become so rough for the Russians that they have to come to some sort of arrangement. Uh, we'll see. The Ukrainians are doing quite well on the ground. They've got this problem with not having enough defense from the air. The Russian troops are demotivated. A lot of them are surrendering. Uh, so they're compensating for that by using bombs and rockets that don't need personal motivation. They just get shot off and and kill people and destroy infrastructure. So uh, the economic stuff is important. It's a race against time. Uh, Whether the economic sanctions and the Ukrainian fight back will be more effective than Russia simply deploying more and more of its uh, firepower uh, in uh, in this struggle. But I think Reinforcing the Ukrainians, giving them more tools to do the job, uh, providing them with, uh, you know, uh, those Polish planes and other air defense support, that will help turn the tide. From your lips to God's ears. Roman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, being able to join you. Roman Washuk is a former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine. He was in that position between 2014 and 2019, and he joined us on the line from Krakow, Poland. It's Jane for Libby. I'll be back with you again tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your day. The number ones at one are coming up next after Bob Comsick's news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.